Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 22nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a bill that will restrict trans youth's access to gender-affirming care is headed to the governor's desk. Then, a look at how courts, prosecutors, and police make money at the expense of the poor. Plus, in this week's History is Lunch, a look at the origins of home economics. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi lawmakers have passed one of the first highly debated bills of the legislative session, House Bill 1125, known as the REAP Act, which stands for Regulate Experimental Adolescent Procedure, bans gender-affirming health care for minors. The bill quickly passed out of the House in early January and was taken up on the Senate floor yesterday. It specifically prohibits surgical procedures, puberty blockers, and hormone therapy as treatment for gender affirmation for anyone 17 years old and younger. Republican Joey Fillingane of Sumrall presented the bill on the Senate floor. There's a clinic in Hattiesburg, for instance, named the Spectrum Clinic. I visited um, with them, the, the owners, the operators of that clinic, um, just yesterday afternoon at length. Um, very nice people, I think very well-meaning, very well-intentioned people, but we have a very different worldview. They believe that for transgender children, they ought to be able to um, prescribe puberty-blocking drugs. These are drugs that keep um, young boys from developing in ways that young boys would become men. Uh, similarly, it prohibits um, young ladies from developing in ways that ladies develop. It stops the process. Uh, and then what they do after stopping the natural hormone production, they then administer cross-hormone therapy, which is for little boys, giving them lots of doses of estrogen so that they grow breasts. They do things that are not natural. And that's what we're trying to prohibit in this particular bill. The bill also provides a course of civil action for any violation of the ban, meaning anyone could sue a physician, parent, or guardian they expect of providing prohibited care. The statute of limitations is 30 years. Senator Rod Hickman, a Democrat from Macon, had this exchange with Republican Joey Fillingane of Sumrall on the Senate floor. I'll be very clear here. 
um, a large percentage of what you're saying, I, I don't disagree with. But, but what I'm talking about is in a state that's al that already has a physician shortage, I'm trying to figure out why are we codifying something that is not the medical standard of care, that does not happen in a huge amount of instances, mm -hmm. which now creates broad and long-lasting causes of action that could. I mean, anybody who practices understands how, how malpractice insurance work that could cause doctors to have an extra uh, 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 fees because they provide medically necessary care because now this comes with the option. As you just said, anybody can sue anybody. And so now we're creating a cause of action that anybody can sue doctors. Uh, and it's not just the, 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 the child, it's anybody can sue these doctors for anything. And so you've opened up so many avenues uh, that doctors can then uh, be sued. And so that is where I am. I'm not arguing with you that many of these things should not be happening, right. but I am saying they are, they are not happening because they're not even the medical center of care. So I guess my question is, is this a state that's going to allow doctors to practice what they do or are we not? Well, we um, certainly set out parameters for what is an acceptable standards of care and what is not. And what this bill, if passed, would do is to merely lay out very, very simply, three things that doctors would not be able to do on persons 17 years of age and under. And that would be prescribing, administering puberty blocking drugs for those who are attempting to transition their gender, um, to prescribe or administer cross-sex therapy hormones for those who are trying to gender transition, or to perform gender reassignment surgeries. Those are the three things that our medical friends would not be able to do. And again, I, I totally understand that. And a lot of, a lot of it, I actually uh, agree with you on. There are some parts of this bill that give me uh, great pause. Uh, but, but, but I guess, uh, I guess my next question is, what does this do regarding uh, uh, mental health professionals? How are they affected or how are mental health treatments affected by this particular bill? They're not affected at all. And I think, yeah, thank you for asking that question because um, there is no prohibition for individuals seeking mental health care. Uh, we encourage that, we ought to encourage that, and I personally do encourage that. This bill does not say anywhere in it, I defy anyone to, to show me a line where it says mental health care cannot or should not even be provided. And so uh, uh, with this, though, I think the bill does say something to the extent of uh, or, or uh, I guess it could in some ways be interpreted that you shouldn't provide any medical services that relate to uh, a gender transition. And I mean, I think, I think that's the, the crux of the bill within itself. And so while we are codifying causes of action that are already not the medical standard. We are codifying causes of actions. We are basically finding a problem that does not exist and we're codifying this. So I guess my question in us unnecessarily uh, uh, legislating, could we add a section that allows men, uh, mental health professionals or let them know that you are excluded from this bill and you can provide those particular services? You know, the legislative body can do what the majority of legislators decide they want to do. 
Is it necessary for this bill? No, in my opinion, because it's not prohibited in the first place. I understand. I agree with you on a lot. Uh, but the one thing I, I think is that the bill within itself is not necessary. And so I think we may as well add some language that you may find unnecessary to assure that medical professionals uh, can practice. Hickman offered an amendment that would carve out an exception for trans counseling. It failed, and the bill passed the Senate 33 to 15, largely along party lines. Governor Tate Reeves will soon have the bill on his desk and has reaffirmed his support of the legislation yesterday on social media. When signed, it will go into effect immediately. Coming up, a look at how courts, prosecutors, and police make money at the expense of the poor. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. When a minor enters the justice system, it can mean thousands of dollars for state agencies. A new book titled Injustice, Inc. looks at how our courts, prosecutors, and police make money at the expense of the poor. It details how juvenile courts push children into foster care and prosecutors pursue families for court fines and fees. The Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick talked with author Daniel Hatcher about his research. As I continued to engage in both litigation and research for um, my scholarship, I found that every part of our justice system, our juvenile courts, our family courts, criminal courts, our probation departments, policing agencies, our prosecutors' offices, detention facilities and jails are all engaged in these various contractual revenue schemes to generate revenue from the vulnerable populations they're supposed to serve. You know, you mentioned in the book the racial implications of this, and I just was wondering if you could briefly kind of break down what you found and and why or why not. That's surprising. So of the revenue mechanisms that I um, uncover and write about in the book, um, it's not that just that they're causing harm to the individuals pulled in, but it's causing a disproportionate harm based upon income and race. So if you look at this, one of the parishes in Louisiana, Jefferson Parish, indicated that black youth are overrepresented at every contact point with the juvenile justice system. And even though black youth made up about 30, 33% of the population, they represented 69%, almost 70% of all youth referred to the juvenile court. And those numbers, those statistics are what you see across the country, just devastating, disproportionate harm and disproportionate treatment um, against families and children of color. Mm. And Daniel, you were a legal aid attorney for some years, but I'm just wondering how your former work in that area colors your your research and your work on these books. Well, I've I've been an an advocate and attorney for for children and low-income individuals for 
over 25 years. Um, and my past work, my very first job at Legal Aid was representing uh, hundreds of foster children pulled into the broken Baltimore foster care system. Um, and that experience both overwhelmed me, um, but also inspires me. You know, I can't forget it. I can't shake what I saw, what I learned, and I still feel driven in my, in my research and my advocacy to try to help. And when I, when I encounter systemic failings in the systems and the institutions of justice and welfare that are, again, supposed to serve um, these children, right? When I find out that they're instead using these children as a revenue source, I feel driven to uncover that. Right. And one other money generating entity, right, are these private prisons. In Louisiana, where I live, a lot of them have become immigration detention centers. And I'm just interested in your sort of concept of what the implications of the private prison company managing minors is. Well, it's hugely concerning when you have a profit motive to detain, right, and incarcerate children. Um, and you know, that privatized focus, you know, be, becomes part of a um, of a business. And sometimes it starts with maybe a small company that that starts either a, um, a detention facility or a residential treatment center that sounds better, but is still detaining children. But I'm also concerned not just with the use of private companies, right? Some nonprofits are engaged in the same process, and some of the government-run facilities they're increasingly running like a business. Are you seeing any effort to sort of pull back and build a justice system that isn't focused on cost over care? There has been some improvement in some jurisdictions, um, not nearly enough, um, but we have to have hope. You know, we have to keep trying. It, the justice, as I write about in the book, it's an ideal. Um, and us humans, we're flawed, right? You know, so we, may not, we might not ever be able to attain the pure ideal of equal and impartial justice, but we have to keep striving for that. And we in the justice systems, that's our entire reason for existing, right, is to serve equal justice, right? So we have to keep striving. We have to keep looking inwards to improve ourselves as individual parts of the system and the systems in which we work. Um, and it just couldn't be more crucial to do that. That was Daniel Hatcher, author of the new book, Injustice, Inc., he talked with the Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick. Coming up in this week's History is Lunch, a look at the origins of home economics. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A common perception of home economics might include images of lopsided hand-sewn pillows or recipes gone awry. But the origins of the field are a story of the revolutionary science of better living. That's the focus of the latest work by Danielle Dreilinger, who is presenting at this week's History is Lunch. I got the idea for this book about home economics uh, in 2016, and 
I just was thinking, yo, shouldn't this be back by now, right? Like thinking about all of the things that our culture is dealing with. And this was, you know, pre-pandemic, right? But people worried about adulting, the push in education to move away from standardized testing and back towards, you know, career technical education. All of the things that we watch on TV, right? Like the Food Network, the HGTV and DIY culture and craftivism. I was like, shouldn't this be back by now? Uh, And then when I started looking into the topic, the first thing I learned was that one of the founders of home economics was the first woman to go to MIT. And it was at that moment that I just knew like, oh my gosh, there is so much more here than anybody knows about. What did you uncover that stood out to you? Well, the really fascinating thing is that the founding decades of home economics, and it started in the 19th century, are the exact opposite of our stereotypes about home economics. Like we think about, you know, Donna Reed and June Cleaver, right? Like this white, happy housewife in a apron. I mean, maybe we think of the sort of depressing alternative, like the madman alcoholic white woman in the kitchen. But home economics was created by career women who were educators, and they had a twofold goal. One was to bring science into the home so that women could get their work done faster in the home and have time to do other things, whether that be paid employment or school or civic activity or spending more time with their kids or anything. And the other was to create a range of careers where women would be accepted because they were tied these careers, you know, sometimes rather tangentially, to work that women had traditionally done in the home. So it really was a women's empowerment and career project from the start. How was it that, well, I remember taking home economics, I'm probably dating myself, but we made little duffel bags and cooked chocolate chip cookies and learned how to sew a Mm -hmm. hem. How is it that that stereotypical portrayal of home economics took off and it almost became, this is a woman's role in the kitchen sewing and cooking. Right, right. And yeah, that was one of the big questions that I had, right? Because what went wrong? And it turned out to be a very complicated uh intertwining of events. But basically, things went wrong after World War II. And there were women being booted out of the workforce, right, to make way for men coming back from war. And there was tons of ideology, right, around women's place being in the home, which, I mean, home economists had never thought that only women should do work in the home. They just knew that was what typically happened. But they never thought there was anything particularly gendered about homemaking. Uh, But you also at the same time had uh, men who were involved in in the field of pediatrics and psychology, which were coming to the fore. And they did have very gendered opinions about, you know, mothering versus fathering, for instance. And at the same time, you had these leaders of home economics thinking that they had pretty much accomplished what they wanted to accomplish in the U.S., and they were traveling the world. They were spreading schools of home economics internationally and being jet-set and focusing on business opportunities and education internationally. So they kind of didn't have their eye on what was happening at home in high schools. And on top of that, you have the space race 
and the Cold War and the emphasis on, you know, hard sciences to compete with Russia. And even though there was a lot of science in home economics, again, like the leaders of the field weren't really making that argument. So you have all of this together and you end up, right, with girls making chocolate chip cookies and being pushed into home economics if they were interested in science or education. Whereas before, home economics had been the field you went into if you wanted to be a scientist and you were a woman because you weren't allowed to take chemistry, but you could study the chemistry of meat in home economics. Interestingly, you talk about Margaret Murray Washington, who was the wife of Booker T. Washington, who was an educator, uh, who was born into slavery, and who uh, started Tuskegee Institute, the college in Alabama. Why did you pick her? So Margaret Murray Washington, who was born in Mississippi and grew up in Mississippi until she uh, left for Fisk Institute in Nashville to get more education. Uh, she came up very early in my research. I was looking through archives, and I was truly just like typing home economics right into archives and seeing what came up. And what came up was a booklet that she co-wrote and edited from the Tuskegee Women's Club from the early 1890s. And it was called Work for the Colored Women of the South. And it was a housekeeping guide for black women, one generation out of slavery, who were living in poverty in, you know, one-room houses without windows, basically in their old slave quarters. And they were, she was trying to do community education to uplift her sisters and help them lead better lives. So I just, you know, immediately I'm like, what? I need to learn every I need to learn everything about this woman. And fortunately, because she was married to Booker T. Washington and she worked at Tuskegee for decades, uh, there are records of her work because Booker T. Washington had a devoted secretary who kept like every scrap of paper he ever touched, and the university had all of its records. So you have you know decades of the work that she did. But also, I mean, she was internationally famous. She met the Queen of England. She was this, she just spoke constantly on black homes and the importance of good housekeeping for moral and economic uplift. I mean, she should be on the stamp. In terms of what she did, was it teaching black women how to be housekeepers, how to take this uh, skill and use it to get a job in a white person's home so that they have a form of income? So it was no and yes. It was complicated. So the, the mission of Tuskegee was to train farmers in agriculture and the trades and business. And the goal was for them to be economically self-sufficient and help themselves. So the, and this, I mean, this was controversial at the time, right? There were black universities and people like W.E.B. Du Bois who said, you know, black people should be getting the same education as white men at Harvard. But Booker T. Washington and Margaret believed that they needed to teach people more practical skills. So it's certainly true that you might possibly go and use these skills to be a cook in a white person's home, but that's not what they focused on. They focused really on training teachers 
to then teach in black schools and go into black communities and to have their own businesses. And there's, in fact, there's a, a pamphlet from uh, Hampton University where Booker T. Washington was educated that, you know, talks about, envisions a white woman coming to Hampton and looking for a maid and being disappointed because they weren't training maids, they were training leaders. Danielle Drylinger, author of The Secret History of Home Economics, will be speaking today at noon for the Mississippi Department of Archives and Histories, History is Lunch, at the two museums. We appreciate you taking the time to give us a peek at what you spent so much time working on and revealing about home economics. Thank you for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.